This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is a bit strange for me, I must say. We are navigating a bit of a uh, technical difficulty in our main control room, so I'm coming to you from the newsroom. You wouldn't know that. I know that. But if uh, things seem a little different, uh, that's the reason why we had that little musical interlude, if you will. So we're here with On Target, and um, uh, as you may already know, a team of divers supported by the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, the Shipwreck Preservation Society of Newfoundland and Labrador, and Ocean Quest Adventures were able to confirm the wreck of a World War II-era plane crash in Gander Lake last weekend. The aircraft, a B-24 Liberator bomber, crashed into Gander Lake after takeoff in September of 1943. Well, it was first identified using sonar earlier this summer and was finally confirmed by divers just a few days ago. Well, Jill Heinerth is an explorer in residence with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey and was one of the leads on the dive team that found the wreck. She joins me now. Hello. Hello. It's nice to be with you, Linda. Uh, well, uh, welcome to Newfoundland. Are you still in, in the province? I am. I'm actually right on the Mermaid dive boat right now with some friends from Ocean Quest and some of the other divers from the Discovery. Fabulous. So it's not just uh, Gander Lake you've been diving. You've been doing some other work as well. And we, I want to touch on that with you uh, as uh, as the show progresses. But uh, mm. I guess off the top, give us a little history on this particular aircraft and how it ended up in Gander Lake. Sure. Yeah. So it's a B-24 Liberator bomber, and it was taking off from Gander Airport with four on board. And uh, they had an engine failure right at the beginning of the flight. And I'm sure tried to, you know, correct the issue, but it was so early on takeoff that they sort of barrel rolled a few times and crashed right into the lake. And Gander Lake is quite dark. Um, it's sort of stained reddish black from the tannins in trees and so there's absolutely no light whatsoever below about 20 feet deep so um, a bit of a challenging dive Uh, well indeed and uh, so there was a loss of life in this crash Uh, did all four Mm. perish Yes, all four perished, and one, uh, Mackenzie was his name, was recovered by hard hat divers, military divers, at the time of the crash. So they set up a uh, a rescue recovery attempt and uh, put some hard hat divers down. And at the time, uh, the wreck was a little bit shallower, and then it slipped. It's right on a ledge, and it's very precarious. It wants to slip into the depths that would be far beyond the range of diving. And so during their attempts over about 12 days, they tried to grapple the wreck and everything else, but they only recovered one of the men. So the other three souls are on board. So this is a, this is a grave site. It's absolutely a war grave, and, and we treat it with such respect. I mean, it's we're doing documentation, so we're drawing and sketching and taking pictures and video to find the identifying marks that tell us that this is that actual aircraft. Uh, but we're not touching anything. We're not recovering anything. Um, just just information. 
So the plane has been sitting uh, in Gander Lake for these 70-odd uh, years. Uh, I understand mm. that uh, Tony Merkel played a big role in trying to locate this aircraft. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Tony's actually on the boat here today with us. Uh, so Tony, for about nine years, has been researching, uh, trying to figure out the location of the wreck. And when he um, found sort of the GPS coordinates, he connected with Kirk Regular, who was doing some hydrographic survey work in the lake. And Kirk um, did a 3D sonar scan because they couldn't see this just with your typical fish finder. But with a more advanced 3D sonar, they were able to see the shape, the rough shape of the plane and they were pretty sure they had the target but you don't really know until you go um, and so these were the very first dives on Monday to actually put a diver on the wreck. Those sonar images are so haunting too because I mean uh, yeah. a plane is a very distinctive shape <laughs> and uh, yeah. it, and it, it appears as though that the plane is relatively intact allowing you to see that distinctive plane type shape. Yeah it's um it's remarkably well-preserved in this deep water. I imagine, I'm not sure because I haven't done any chemistry work on it, but I, I think the water is pretty anoxic, like without oxygen, and so things stay quite well-preserved in that cold depth um, there. Yeah. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what you saw and what you found when you dove the site. Mm -hmm. When we come back after the break, our guest today on On Target is Jill Heinerth, an explorer in residence with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey. And we're talking about the crash of the B-24 Liberator bomber in Gander Lake. Uh, we'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And our guest today is Jill Heinerth. She is an explorer in residence with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey, and she was one of the leads on this Great Island Expedition. And this started some time ago, as you just uh, pointed out, Jill, with um, Tony Merkel, who uh, knew that uh, plane was there and was trying to locate it. Tell us a little bit about the expedition that started with the sonar before you even got to the dive stage. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, Kirk Regular, working with some uh, people from MUN, were uh, doing a hydrographic survey. And, and so Tony you know, said, hey, can you look at this GPS mark and, and uh, show us what's there? And uh, so it didn't take long for him to do a few sweeps and, um, and find that image that, that you probably, many of the viewers will have seen in the, in the paper and online. So how did you get involved in all of this? Uh, well, I've been dear friends with Rick Stanley and uh, the crew here at Ocean Quest for a long time, and and I'm really quite interested in this. I mean, these these uh, Liberator bombers used to, you know, patrol the the Belle Island area and protect some of those ore carrying uh, vessels that were were leaving the mine with that very high grade of iron ore that was critical for the shipbuilding efforts. And so these these Liberators were part of those shore patrols, and that that's kind of a you know interesting to me, um, having dived these shipwrecks here for so long. Um, and, you know, all of this you know, is important, you know, World War II history that, that I think a lot of Canadians don't know just the magnitude of the sacrifice that, that Newfoundlanders made in their participation in the war efforts. It is. It's extraordinary. And, um, and I was going to ask you, I mean, what did you need to do to prepare to dive this site once, once that aircraft was located? What did you need to uh, take into account? 
Well, you know, we do a lot of research on the planes themselves. The Liberators, there was quite a, a lot of different designs for these Liberators, and so we try to learn as much as we can about the actual aircraft, because what we're looking for are like key identifying marks uh, that are specific to an aircraft. So sometimes that's a, you know, a serial number on an engine, sometimes it's a, you know, a flag or an insignia or something, and so that's what we're looking for when we dive, is a match to something that we've, we've found through historical research. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's a bit of a treasure hunt in a, in a way, because you also don't want to disturb anything at the, at the same time. How do freshwater dives differ from saltwater dives? You already mentioned, you know, um, the, the blackness of the water. Uh, how does yeah. it differ? Uh, well, also, it's uh, your, your buoyancy, so how you float or sink in the water is different. We actually... Uh, we're actually more buoyant in salt water than in, in fresh water, so that's a little bit different. I mean, it's all cold. <laughs> it was about, I don't know, six, five or six degrees on the bottom. So, same with the ocean here. How deep is this aircraft? Uh, well, when we went down the descent line, we uh, landed at the, uh, the uh, landing gear, basically, at about 120 feet of water. So the aircraft is upside down, and the wheels are sticking up. And the wheels look you know, remarkably intact. And uh, so we had the line tied on right there so that we could start our dive at kind of the center of the, uh, of the aircraft. Yeah. So the level of preservation uh, is different in freshwater than saltwater? Yeah, oftentimes um, things are quite well preserved in, in fresh water where the salt water will, you know, kind of degrade and rust away anything that's, uh, that's metal underwater. Um, it tends to uh, stay fairly well intact and fresh. And you said there's a, this anaerobic kind of uh, atmosphere down yeah. there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as an example, we saw, you know, a 50 caliber gun sticking up out of the sill with belts of ammunition all fully intact. We saw, you know, intact instrumentation. Uh, uh, so many things that look uh, exactly the same as they were the day that, that aircraft crashed. So there are dangers inherent in uh, diving some of these sites, but uh, uh, live ammunition is a whole other thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's a whole other thing. But so many of these war wrecks had uh, still, you know, large bombs and ammunition on board. And uh, we see a lot of that underwater. Yeah. So what kind of preparations do you have to make in order to, you know, mitigate against something like that? Because you could find anything there. It could be live yeah. and it could be very volatile. Well, we don't touch anything. Like as an example, uh, the last couple of years, uh, Rick Stanley here at Ocean Quest Adventures has worked with the Canadian military to help clear some of the uh, remaining ordnance on the Belle Island shipwrecks, and um, and that was in order to you know make them even safer since they're becoming kind of popular tourist uh, destinations. Um, so you know, there's there is ammunition everywhere. I mean, we you know we read about these things even in uh, on land in Europe where you know lost. Uh, you know, World War II ordinance are, are found and they have to clear an area and, and remove it. What kind of uh, condition uh, is the site? Is it on a rocky bottom, a silty bottom? 
Well, it's a there's a lot of filth on the wreck, and we kind of you know try to leave leave everything as is. It's on a ledge though, um, and so it's kind of precariously perched. It's already slipped <laughs> once, I guess, back in 1943 when they did the initial recovery attempts, and uh, and so it is sort of you know balanced precariously there, and you know could end up at the bottom of the lake at some point. So how deep is this? Uh, so the the wreckage that we looked at is between 120 and 155 feet deep, um, but the lake is considerably deeper, like over 800 feet deep. If it, if that ever came off the ledge, so that would be beyond the beyond the range of diving if it did that. Right, and you had to be profoundly aware that uh, you know there are three souls there. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it's uh, you know it's a sobering experience doing these sorts of dives, and uh, you know we want to treat that site with the utmost respect that it deserves as uh, as a war grave, and and be you know respectful to the descendants, the families of, of those that were lost. Is there a certain level of trepidation as you're, uh, you know, um, collecting the data from this site that, you you know, you will come across the, 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 the remains? Well, you have to, you know, mentally prepare yourself that that's a possibility. Um, but, you know, I would say before a dive, like, I've, I, there's always quite trepidation and even fear. It's important to be afraid. You're doing something that's risky and, and you want to dive with other people that also understand there's a level of risk for what you're doing. Um, and uh, yet, before the dive, you kind of mentally rehearse all the possible things that could happen on a dive and sort of you know, set those aside on a shelf for a little bit, put your emotions aside and uh, stick to a very strict um, safety protocol and task. And then, and then after the dive, you know, you can bring those emotions back in and, and kind of honor them. It has to be uh, really haunting though, to suddenly come across this in, in the blackness. I mean, what's it like? Yeah. It, it must be silent and black. Yeah, it's interesting because you are you're descending down a guideline, but but it's black. You, you see nothing around you but blackness. So it's like floating through space. And as you're descending, you're just waiting for that first sight, that first sight of of the wreckage. And and what's funny is I kind of had my camera dangling below me, and sometimes your camera can see a little bit more than your eyes. And so I actually saw the first image of the landing gear, the wheels. Um, through the camera viewfinder, even before my own eyes could detect it. Is that right? How fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did, did it surprise you? I mean, you know, I, I know you've done this many, many times, but as you're diving and you're going down and you, you say you're following this guideline, I mean, do you lose track of, of where you are in the water column? Well, we have instrumentation, so we're watching the depths on our diving computers, and we're we're diving face to face with our buddy when we're going down the descent line because the visibility is so bad down there that even though I had like twenty to thirty thousand lumens of light, that's very bright lighting. Even just a couple feet away, my buddy was unable to see it. <laughs> so the challenges were not just difficult for diving, but also for filming. Is that right? Mm -hmm. With just mm -hmm. a few feet. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's yeah, the just, level of tannins in the water. Yeah, it just literally absorbs your light. Yeah. yeah. Sucks it right up. Uh, so yeah, what are you going to yeah. be doing with all this data now? 
Well, we are passing on all of the images, the video, the sketches, all the information that we've gained. We have shared it with the Newfoundland and Labrador Shipwreck Preservation Society, and we will be um, also sharing it with the military. We're just gathering all the assets together right now. Um, because it's important for them to, you know, keep track of, of all of these sorts of sites and where, where you know, sailors, uh, airmen, soldiers lost their lives. Indeed. And I want to ask you, because you've been busy and we can hear you're yeah. busy now. Uh, you've been busy while you've been here. And I want to talk to you a little bit yeah. about some of the many, many things you've been doing here, uh, aside yeah. from finding a World War II aircraft. Uh, when we come back <laughs> after the break, my guest today on On Target is one of the leads of what's being called the Great Island Expedition. Jill Heinerth is an explorer in residence with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey. We'll be back right after this. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back. My guest today is Jill Heinerth. She is an explorer in residence with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey. She was involved with the Great Island Expedition that helped to uh, locate and identify that uh, World War II bomber. And uh, Jill, I, I wanted to ask you, how did you become involved with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey? Well, you know, they actually called me up one day <laughs> and said, you know, we would like you to be our first explorer in residence. And uh, and I said, wow, you know, I knew that National Geographic had explorers in residence, but uh, the Royal Canadian had never had one. And uh, so I, I gladly accepted the volunteer appointment and and with a goal to really stimulate and inspire the next generation of uh, of young explorers. So what what's the role all about? What do you do? You know, it's funny. They said, well, we don't know what an explorer in residence is, but we want one. <laughs> and uh, they said, what would you like to do with the uh, with the position, with the office? And I said, really, I, I, I want to be the woman that I wish I'd met when I was 10 <laughs> and uh, help, you know, travel around to classrooms around the country and talk to kids about exploration and discovery and unusual careers and um and so since uh, since I was first appointed, I've managed to travel to every province and territory in Canada and go to classrooms and, and gymnasiums full of kids and, uh, and work with them on uh, kind of engaging their exploration mindset. You want to be the woman that you wish you'd met when you were 10. That gave me goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> you know, I always wanted to be a diver. And I, you know, remember watching Jacques Cousteau on TV and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, but also I was watching Apollo launches in those days, you know, and, and, and yet there weren't astronauts or scientists or divers that, looks like me there weren't any women in these spaces and and uh so it's really exciting to me now to see the next generation of 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 young women explorers coming up to the ranks i mean our our team is a wonderfully balanced team of of men and women and you know even 10 years ago that wasn't something that happened very often i was always the only girl on the boat how how did you get involved in diving 
Uh, you know, really just from that childhood dream. My family had no background in diving. They didn't even think that people dove in Canada because they said, it's too cold, dear. <laughs> and uh, so I had my first experience with scuba when I was a lifeguard as a teenager. And then uh, during university, I managed to squirrel away enough money to take the classes and buy some gear. And and I never looked back. <laughs> you were hooked, so to speak. Absolutely. So what sort of uh, work does the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey do? Uh, how does a diver come to their attention? Well, um, there's you know several facets. A lot of people will be familiar with uh, Canadian Geographic magazine, and, and that's you know one of the products that we put out. But but a big part of the society's work is also through, also through CanGeo Education, where we provide free uh, teaching resources to teachers all over the country. Um, you know, thirty thousand or so teachers across the country use uh, use the resources that we provide online for uh, for uh, you know making their classrooms a little bit more exciting and relevant. And you don't often think of diving when you think of uh, geographical surveying, but I suppose it's an important part of that process as well. Oh, absolutely. I, I tell people that, listen, I'm, I'm documenting the hidden geography of Canada. I mean, you know, we can all see the mountains, the Rockies. We can all see the coastline. But so few pe- people ever have the experience of, of diving and getting beneath the surface and seeing the rest of what's remarkable about, about Canada. And we have 243,000 kilometers of coastline and and the Great Lakes, and and there's just so much here to see. Well, I mean, for instance, you mentioned Gander Lake. I was born in Gander. I lived in Gander for quite a few years. You look across that lake, you know it's deep. Uh, People tell you it's deep, but when you say there's a shelf there and then it just drops off to 800 feet, that's a real eye-opener. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Because it's really kind of a skinny-looking lake, but yes, it's deep. It's It's a canyon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they unveiled a, a plaque on Bell Island yesterday to mark, of course, the sinking of the four iron ore carriers by German U-boats back in World War II. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing you've dived those sites? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was at the ceremony yesterday, and it was uh, it was absolutely beautiful, beautiful gathering and wonderful to uh, to recognize this you know, historic event as, as being so important. And, of course, they're so close to land in this particular case. They're fairly accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what is it about those, um, those uh, wrecks that uh, are, are so attractive to divers? You know, they're some of the most beautiful wrecks in the world. In fact, um, I mean, the, again, these are also war graves, so we treat them with respect, but they've also become these amazing artificial reefs. I mean, the marine biology just is recruited to um, to attach itself to these, these wrecks and structures. And uh, so today, I mean, I was just in the water diving on the Rose Castle, the deepest of the four wrecks, and the stern gun is completely intact. Um, the deck, the wooden deck has kind of um, uh, dissolved away or been eaten by, uh, by marine life. Um, but that gun is still sitting there and the gun is covered in colorful sea anemones. So we see white and yellow and pink and orange puffy looking, um, anemones just attached all over the barrel and, and even like coming out of the end of the barrel. So it's amazing to see this weapon of war, that's now been sort of consumed by the ocean and transformed into something quite beautiful. That's a beautiful analogy. I understand the water clarity is pretty good too? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, this is world-class diving here, and very few people realize it, or, or maybe, you know, fewer people are, are interested in cold-water diving, but it's really, really worth it to see these. I mean, there's one other place, a World War II uh, wreck diving destination called Truck Lagoon down in Micronesia that a lot of us go to you know, once in our life to see the wrecks there. And we call this the truck of the north because I think it's just a beautiful. You mentioned the colors, and I've heard people say that before. I've never been down there. I'm no good for that sort of thing, but I've heard that the colors are just extraordinary. Oh, they are the colors and the textures. And, and quite frankly, like every time that we, that we dive on these wrecks, they're a little bit different because certainly they continue to rust. They, they will collapse over time. The ice runs over them in the wintertime. A storm can, and can you know, be detrimental to the wreck as well. So they do change from year to year. Plus, new things grow and, and move on to the wrecks. I mean, even just today, uh, you know, there were several of these large red lion's mane jellyfish that were, um, had drifted in and entangled in the wreck, and so we were freeing some of these jellyfish. <laughs> so a little rescue on the yeah. side there. Um, mm. Are there any inherent air, um, uh, sorry, um, uh, challenges or, or um, difficulties yeah. with these kinds of wrecks? Uh, well, I mean, there are overhead spaces um, that, you know, uh, are dangerous. There's, you know, things that you could become entangled in. Um, and then, you know, certainly every dive deserves the respect of very careful safety protocols and um you know, it's it's really important to stick to those protocols, even when your mouth is agape at the beauty of what you're seeing. And we have seen some accidents uh, at the site in the past. Um, have you mm-hmm. dove the the mines? Oh yes, yes, um, uh, many times. And back in uh, 2016, we we had an expedition with the Royal Canadian Geographical Society here as the expedition of the year when we were diving in the mines and the uh, and the wrecks and uh, documenting them. And I have a whole series of photographs on the on the wall in the uh, number two museum that I donated after that project, so others could see what they look like. What's it like down there? Is it just like a mine that's filled with water or do things start to habitate that area well you know it's fascinating the mine itself like i mean i I don't think i could ever explore the whole thing in in a lifetime there's so many passages and tunnels and you have to imagine that literally when they turned the pumps off and the water would have slowly filled into the mine um, everything that was in the mine is still there so we literally follow this industrial archaeology pipeworks and machinery and and um and see the personal you know artifacts of the miners themselves tools and lunch boxes and there's even a spot where i found a box spring mattress so maybe the miners were having little naps underground as well and yes um things also start to grow there's self-peroxidizing bacteria in there that's um it's really creating an, its own little, uh, you know, community. I guess yeah. that's fascinating because I, I suppose there'd be no access for fish or anything like that. But other creatures would start to habitate the area. I would imagine. 
Yeah, I mean, these algal communities, the bacterial communities, um, it would be an interesting thing to have to have a look at. There are some scientists who specialize in astrobiology that are interested in these sort of, you know, biological communities in mines and, and caves because they might most closely resemble the types of life that we could find in other places in the solar system. I mean, these are sort of the roots of, of life, that primordial ooze. <laughs> Indeed, a, a, another ecosystem for sure developing as we speak um Mm -hmm. so uh, do you prefer uh, cold water dives or the warmer climbs well i mean a warm water dive is always nice but i have to say if there was only one place i could dive for the rest of my life it would be canada so i'll take the cold water (laughs) where else have you uh dove divin (laughs) oh gosh I've dived all around the world. So um, from I was the first person to cave dive inside of Antarctic icebergs, I've dived under the Sahara Desert, inside volcanic lava tubes in the Canary Islands, and caves, caves all over the world, because that's my specialty, underwater cave systems. Cool. You've, di- uh, you've done diving underneath the ice. What's that like? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've done quite a lot of work in the polar regions, and... Um, I really kind of look at that as an as an endangered environment as well. I mean, every time I take a photograph of of an iceberg or or something under the ice sheet, it it it, uh, it may not be there again. I mean, the ice is thinning in the north, and um, life is having to make some pretty hard and fast adaptations to uh, to the change. Um, so it's it's quite fascinating. And you dove under the Sahara. What? Yes, yeah. I led a project for National Geographic um, traveling from Cairo across the western desert of Egypt to the border of Libya, um, where there are oases, springs. And again, I kind of like applied my childlike curiosity lens to um, the fact that I remember, you know, reading about oases and palm trees in the middle of the desert. And I thought, well, where does the water come from? If it doesn't rain, it only rains once every 25 years or so in that part of the desert so uh, it's groundwater and I uh, was literally following in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and uh, trying to um, follow some of the leads that he left in his memoirs about the potential for underwater uh, cave systems in that part of the world and well, I mean, you know, you think of the desert and you think of a parched landscape, but the Nubian aquifer lays beneath Egypt, Libya, Chad, and Sudan. So this is a vast um, quantity of, of, of fresh water that's sort of trapped within the, the rock and the soils beneath the surface. And it's being rapidly depleted because it's not raining again. But that's where the water comes from that you see in these springs. So we found a lot of uh, Roman and Greek artifacts and ruins within these um, these environments. But what I found most interesting were, like, there were different levels of, of walls to contain these springs. And uh, what that was reflecting were the changes in sea level, changes in water table through history, like through 2,000 years of history, basically, or more. And, uh, and I thought that was quite interesting to see, you know, where the walls had been built over time. Wow, so a, a real record. Yeah, yeah. Little, literally like catchment pools because all of that fresh water was so critical for them. And in some places they did some very elaborate water reengineering to move 
the water from one oasis to another oasis and, and create these sort of agricultural ditches and underground passageways to, to move water so that they could grow food or deliver it to, to for drinking water. I understand you dove another important uh, Newfoundland and Labrador uh, rec site, the Truxton and the Pollocks, while you've been here. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you about that when we come back after the break. My guest today mm-hmm. on On Target is diver Jill Heinerth. She's a, an explorer in residence with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey, and she's been involved in the Great Island Expedition. She's on the water as we speak. We'll be back right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And our guest today is Jill Heinerth, an explorer in residence with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey. And she's been doing, uh, wow, a lot of diving here in Newfoundland and Labrador. I understand you recently dove the site of the Truxton and Pollux in St. Lawrence and Lameline. What was that like? Oh, yes, uh, extraordinary. Um, I mean, those are two important U.S. naval shipwrecks. and uh, the stories of some of the survivors from those wrecks are amazing, but also the stories of some of the rescuers from St. Lawrence and Lawn and the Buren Peninsula. I mean, the the sacrifices that the local people made it were were heroic. I said Lamaline, it's Lawn, of course. Um, yeah. uh, so, but they're challenging sites, I understand. There's an awful lot of wave action there. Uh, you sort yeah. of have to pick your time, don't you? Mm-hmm. We got incredibly lucky because it's it's very rough, and you have to imagine that these ships ran aground in February, and the men would have been wearing like street clothes in high seas in a winter storm. And as the ships broke up, the waves were washing bunker oil like up the sides of the cliffs, and these men. The ones that actually made it through the oil-filled seas to the beach then had to climb this vertical, dangerous cliff that's covered in ice and oil. And it's really only because of the uh, the local residents, um, you know, discovering what was going on and going out to help that these people, some of them, made it. It's an extraordinary uh, story of uh, human mm-hmm. perseverance uh, and and bravery. It's just uh, amazing, and uh, the rescuers, with no training whatsoever, just the uh, the ability to think on their feet and and come up with a plan, just amazing. You know, I think that's that's the Newfoundland characteristic, though, isn't it? I mean, honestly, like immediately when they knew what had happened, the entire towns just sprung to action. I mean, there were people gathering food and medical supplies and understanding that they were going to have to, you know, treat these people medically. There wasn't a hospital at the time. And then others gathered ropes and supplies and went out in the deep snow. They even took a dory all the way out to this very high pinnacle and tried to lower it down to the men because their lifeboats just kept kept getting smashed and capsized upon the rocks. So it, it wasn't even just, you know, a, a, a thing that took a few hours. This was something that was days and then months and then years. And it's still very much in the front of mind of of the people there. I mean, that was a, a devastating thing. But also some, you know, wonderful good has come from the work of the survivors and the rescuers. So what's left down there? I would imagine with all that wave action over the last 75 or so years, uh, there's not a lot mm-hmm. uh, left. 
Well, it's all broken up. Um, there's still, you know, large hull plates. There are big boilers, chunks of the engine. And then the Pollux was a supply ship. So it's kind of like somebody just took a hardware store and threw it up all over the bottom. <laughs> like, I mean, there's literally, like, everything that's brass and copper uh, still just looks like it did the day it went down, you know? I mean, there's little padlocks with USN for U.S. Navy on them. There's, um, you know, portholes, cutlery, plates, uh, all sorts of things that are just sitting down there and um, and should remain. I mean, this is uh, it's a time capsule. It's a, it's a war grave, and I know there have been some salvage efforts in, in the past, uh, just literally for the value of the metal, but... Um, but I really think it, it should stay there um, now. Again, another uh, war grave site. Are these the types of sites mm-hmm. that, um, that draw you because of these human stories? You seem to be very, you know, mm-hmm. captured by the, the human stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every every wreck, every uh, everything has a story. But but I'm also interested in in the biology and the life in the in the changes that I've seen in the marine environment through the course of my uh, my career. Um, but yeah, I want to communicate. I want to if I'm going to take a risk to go diving, I want it to be for some positive good in terms of outreach and education, and I want to be able to share the things that I'm so privileged to see that so few people ever get a chance to experience. Well, I'm so happy that you were able to share it with us here today. Jill Heinerth, uh, all the best to you. And what have you got planned now in the coming days? Oh, well, I'm, I'm right back to work on the Ottawa River <laughs> in, uh, in a couple of days where I'm uh, exploring Canada's longest underwater cave system and, and some pretty remarkable endangered species uh, in that space. Oh, so cool. Well, enjoy your mm-hmm. last uh, few hours or days here in Newfoundland. Um, really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Linda. Take care. All the best. And uh, have a good weekend, everyone. Uh, Jill Heinerth, of course, is an explorer in residence with the Royal Canadian Geographical Survey. Uh, enjoy your weekend again. And we'll be back on Monday with another, uh, hopefully, very interesting show. It's been a pleasure speaking with her this afternoon. Uh, Thanks for listening.